Hey, everybody, I know that there is not a lot of good news in the world today. So at this point, the best we can really do is uh, get little micro victories and hold on to them like they're gold chalices. Yeah, it's come to that. Today's micro victory, well, it's almost October. I know, it doesn't seem like much, but I love October. And even though it isn't October just yet, the micro victory is it soon will be. We're scraping for good news, I know. But it really is good news because I love Halloween and demons and monsters and werewolves and murder. Uh, By the way, I am still single, in case you were wondering. But I really do. I really do love those things. And October is a month of pure, dark magic. And I thought it's the perfect time to promote my new young adult book, Malro and the Midnight Organ Fight. It's a novel about two teenage detectives trying to solve a series of murders one bloody summer in San Francisco. There's murder and kung fu and swords and organ removal and thrash metal and what else is there? Oh, weird Russians swinging cleavers. Uh, There's also a love story in there. And the fact that I was able to get that in means I'm either a really great writer or a really terrible one. You tell me. Look, I want you to buy the book from your local indie bookstore, but I'm also going to give you a chance to get one right now for free. All you have to do is send me a note and tell me how you're going to be spending your Halloween. The best answer gets a free signed copy of the book sent to your house. What are you doing on the best night of the year? Let me live vicariously through your Halloween plans. Drop me a line at editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. By the way, I have gotten one invitation to go to a sexy vampire party, but it's in Norway. I really want to go. I feel like I'd be stepping into a fantasy I've dreamed of my entire life, but how am I getting to Oslo in the middle of a pandemic? That actually might be the opening line of my next book. And if I go to that party, well, let's just say that book might have pictures. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Well, I tried to make it Sunday, but I got so damn depressed that I set my sights on Monday and I got myself undressed. I ain't ready for the altar, but I do agree there's times when a woman sure can be a friend of mine. That is the music of America, which features my guest today on the program, Dewey Bunnell. Let me tell you a little bit about America and Dewey Bunnell. So it's hard for me to think of a breezier, catchier band than America. Formed in London in 1970 by high schoolers Bunnell, Jerry Beckley, and Dan Peake, the band was so good they had a Warner Brothers record deal and a debut album out just a year later. And they also had a massive hit with a horse with no name and grabbed a Grammy in 1972. Not a bad start. America would put out 18 albums, including 2015's Lost and Found, but eight of those albums came in the 70s. What a run! They were on fire, and they put out a new album pretty much every year up until 1979. Over the course of their rather winning career, they've worked with George Martin, toured the world several times over, sold millions of records been honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, were backed by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, collaborated with Fountains of Wayne, James Eha of Smashing Pumpkins, Ryan Adams, and Not a Surf. I mean, it's been quite a career, and it very much still is. 
America remained the senators of soft rock, and their music is an effortless blend of windswept acoustic ballads and rousing rootsy classics. To celebrate their 50th anniversary as a band, America have put out a whopping eight-disc box set called Half Century. It's a treasure trove of rare archival recordings, demos, rehearsals, never-before-heard tracks, radio interviews, and guess what? A new song called Remembering. Half Century is one of those museum piece box sets. Every collection has to have it. Okay, look, I'm worried about America. The country? Yes, and you know why. But I'm also worried about America, the band. They make their living on the road, and the road is not a place where a musician can make a living anymore. At least not right now. Dewey and I chat about that a great deal here. But the band have a new album on the way in 2021, and they remain eternally optimistic. So let's focus on that and not on my worrying. Good God, here's me and one of the nicest guys in rock and roll, Dewey Bunnell of America, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Oh, yeah, that's where I'm from. Oh, are you? Yeah. yeah. We were there 27 years. My kids were born at Marin General. We lived in San Anselmo. It was uh, another lifetime now almost for me, it feels like. I always yeah. loved it up there, though. Well, it's still it's still pretty groovy, just a little more expensive groovy. Yeah, it was always, it always had a dollar sign. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, uh, how are you holding up these days in uh, such a tricky time? Well, you know, we're counting the days now. We, we we adapted. My wife and I are up here in Wisconsin. We've got a beautiful, very fortunate, we've got a beautiful little cottage on this lake up here that we've had for 18 years, and it's uh, it's great. But, you know, we've been here four months now, and um, we always come out in the summer anyway. Usually it used to be attached to our daughter's school. We'd come out, in, you know, late May. We came here on May 19th, and we're going to hopefully go back around October 25, so a bit longer, and of course, uh, certain things are limited, but I'm a big outdoors guy, so it's been great to be able to saturate myself in that without having to come and go for shows. See, I would base out here for those summer months from California, where we do live down in Southern California, but um, obviously no shows, so it's been 24-7 saturation into the north woods and the lake and um very limited socializing and things which is usually the case but to answer your question it's getting long and uh like i say we're sort of counting the days more than filling them you know what i mean and what happens to you creatively i mean is it is it good for you creatively or does it feel the opposite you mean the shutdown part of it yeah, like just the idea of being isolated, having so much time in one spot. Are you? Are the creative juices? Are they going, or do they feel like it's stagnating? Well, it, to be honest, my whole my whole creative nature or side of me always kind of shuts down when I come up here. In terms of, you know, I always strum my guitar a little bit, and I've I've always had a a habit of ride jotting note app on my phone or whatever with regard to a, a lyric idea or a title or just curious words and phrases that I back up. Um, but it hasn't changed from that. I'm not that prolific, to be honest. I used to always have to be prodded into writing uh, based on a, a record deal that we had or an obligation or a project that we had initiated. So I don't, I'm not a home studio guy. Um, I tried that. I, I realized my limitations. I'm just not a tech guy. And you really have to stay up on uh, new applications and and updates and upgrades and, you know, the, the hardware. Right. And I'm not that kind of guy. I go down to the dock and throw a lure. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> I know a lot of people think that, oh, you must be writing a ton of stuff of songs during this but not really i started one or two but 
um, again, I need a, a focus. And really the focus with the band has been this this is our 50th anniversary year, and we put a lot of effort both through the agency booking shows and our management and into compiling these retrospective things. We had a few of those over the years, but this was going to, was and is very in-depth. I mean, we've dredged up a whole lot of old stuff and video, and I'm shocked at how much stuff was on hard drives and old, uh, you know, old um, ADATs and cassettes and two-inch tapes and, you know, analog stuff. We really dove deep, as they say, and found a lot of stuff. So that's been the focus. But of course, it all got it all got kind of shut down to the degree that we can promote it on the road and do that sort of a thing because of all the shows are just. And by the way, I, I don't want to keep rambling here. If you have no, other please. questions, well, I was you know the show shut down is a very is a pretty devastating thing actually because that's really been sort of our bread and butter and our our life has been getting out there and performing live shows, you know, between 85 and 100 a year uh, that that really have sustained us and they keep our band going and our crew and um, uh, and this is going so much longer than we estimated. I mean, we I don't know why we estimated anything, but we <laughs> we pulled the plug on ourselves in early March seeing what was what looked like was going on and because we're sort of a high risk age in our 60s our audience is the same and we felt obliged for everybody's protection to um to pull the plug on ourselves but of course like it was like two or three days after we started canceling shows that the national shutdown came to be and so but these this has really been bad for us the shows uh being being um, postponed, essentially. We've had a few cancellations, but primarily they all got bumped into 2021. And now 2021 has been shifting. We've got shows that were in January that have melted away or been forced into later in 2021. I think our first show, well, I know, our first show is January 17th, if it, if it stays on the books. It is right now. And then we've got a handful in February, and things pick up in March. We'll have a very full year right. if things open up. What does that do to you in terms of tension or anxiety? Like, are you pretty mellow about it, or is it kind of starting to become a little bit, you know, nerve-wracking in terms of trying to figure out when you're getting back out there? Well, it has. It's gotten nerve-wracking. I mean, I was, like I say, I embraced the, the whole thing of safety first and the whole thing of uh, – you know, really maximizing this time off and coming out here and being able to do things that I never got to do out here, not musically or professionally, but um, that was the idea. And I, I assumed we'd be picking up some stuff and I could, by September, I'd be able to uh, go back to my formula of flying out of here to shows. Of course, that's not happening. And we'll be back to California by the end of next month. And I thought for sure that would be, we'd be back to uh, flying out of LAX. Right. But there's no flying. <laughs> there's no <laughs> so, uh, anxiety. Uh, I always have a little general anxiety. And I don't think it's necessarily ratcheted up more. But I have concerns, you know. I have concerns about my family, my kids, my grandkids, the, the guys in our band. Uh, I'm, I'm insulated to some degree and I feel grateful for that. And is that we, we've got means and we can stretch this thing out, but it does start to, to stretch everybody's limits financially and, you know, and creatively too. There's a great deal of creative energy that goes into the live show. People say, you know, you hate playing the same songs virtually every night, but there's a whole nother element of performing that is all about performance it's all about having having your voice and hitting those notes and maybe having a better night one night than another and uh i i felt very strong and committed to the live show and really over the last decade 
I mean, it's become a real thing that we look forward to, and we um, dust up the set, you know, uh, throw in a couple of other songs, album cuts, or interchangeable uh, familiar songs, things like that. Yeah, and it all adds to the it all adds to being creative and doing what we do for a living and what we do because we love it. The, the musicians I talked to in March and April and May, they were they were thinking, okay, this is a time I can really spend on writing, and I'm okay. But then as the interviews progressed in the summer months, I could feel, and a lot of musicians did acknowledge a lot of anxiety about the fact that there's no end in sight, and so much money is made now on the road. That yep. now people, the tone of the interviews, people are starting to get really concerned. Yeah, well, I agree. I'm one of those guys. I mean, I really am, and it, it really is. It's a big, it's the whole package, like I was saying. It's the whole package of, of being dead in the water and waiting and with no end in sight. And, and of course, it's about the world in general and everybody. I mean, I feel like. I know the vaccine, hopefully, is going to be the big turning point, at least psychologically, because without it, it doesn't appear. I mean, numbers are going down. If you follow it every day and we get sick of that, my wife and I were just we were watching it with bated breath every day and hoping things would turn. And then they kind of it's a roller coaster ride up and down and back and forth. And um, and that unknown is, is really a terrible thing for, I think, everybody. You can make adjustments. And you can plan ahead and stretch, stretch your lifestyle, but always with some kind of a vague, you know, finish line. Right now, um, I don't, you know, even when, and again, our, our particular industry is going to be the toughest to come back, or one of the, the top three or four industries, I believe, because it, we, our, our business demands people piling in and squishing themselves into, you know, showrooms and arenas and uh, performing arts centers and casino showrooms, whatever. <laughs> and uh, that's a big fat no-no right now if, if you're following the, the rules, which we are, by the way. We, uh, we fully listen to the science and the medical community, and, uh, and they got to know more than I do, you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, here in the Bay Area, a lot of venues are closing, and then there's that factor, which which you go, okay, when it's safe to go back on the road, you know, how will the road have changed? How are the venues even going to still be there? Well, exactly, and I agree. That's that's the whole that just compounds the anxiety as to whether venues will literally. See, we we also over the last several years have played a lot of beautiful um, old vintage theaters in in. Uh, what do you call it, like uh, towns that aren't the big cities, the primary towns. There's loads of these Paramount theaters that were renovated, and local communities really got took a lot of pride in that. You know, there, there are size venues, sort of 1,500 to 2,500 proscenium arch, beautiful theaters and things. If those theaters can't maintain, um, maybe they would start shutting down their there's a lot of that that you hope doesn't go away because we really love those. We even made plans of recording some live things and, and a couple of them that we played, the Lowe's theaters and uh, these old theaters anyway. Yeah. In addition to casinos, we play a lot of casinos, and there's some talk that they're, they've got means they'll hold up. Those rooms may open up again. I know there's casinos opening uh, in terms of getting their – gambling going and some of those showrooms maybe but if those don't come back and then the other thing is even when there's a vaccine if that's the panacea for everybody or if that's the the holy grail to get this thing going again who a lot of people especially our age group and our generation may not even want to risk it uh, right away they may say no we'll hold off for another year or something and how long can can everything um function you know we, I, it, it, we've been chasing our tail with this topic for a few months now um, since it became apparent it wasn't going to go away as quickly as might have been expected. I mean, the yeah. big silver lining, the positive thing, glass half full, is that there's been uh, pandemics and, uh, you know, plagues. 
since medieval times on record, and they do ultimately go away, and the world has survived them and uh, come back. And I have no doubt that that'll be the case here. It's just a matter of how long and how long people can hold on and what the devastation will be caused, in, like you're saying, closing venues. and I mean, even even guy, musicians that were just got their tip jar out at the local bar yeah, out of luck. Every musician is, is looking uh, at a pretty bleak future right now. I feel for the younger artists, the people that were burgeoning acts that were starting to, uh, you know, take off um, and, and how that live performance and taking your music on the road and taking it to audiences is so important to build a fan base and uh, that rug's been pulled out. Are you commiserating with fellow musicians? Are you, are you aside from your bandmates, do you have friends that are in the industry that you chat with it to sort of just get through this? A, a little bit. There's a couple of artists we've played with a lot over the years and uh, basically just Facebook posts and various things, social media. I mean, yeah, we got a couple of players we talk to, but they're pretty much in the same boat. Christopher Cross is a good friend we worked with. He actually got the virus. Yeah. So when we when we speak about that, it's how are you doing? Because he had some uh, side effects uh, that affected him pretty severely. And I hope I'm not giving away anything. I think he's pretty well publicized that. But people like that, you know, um, that are in in a bad space. He had talked about that, and he I think he had, he was dealing with some kind of paralysis, and he he was pretty public about it. Yeah. Um, I don't know the update on him, but I mean, it's a, it's a very strange time. And there's also the, the other worry is people talk about, you know, when are fans going to feel okay about going back? And my other question is, well, when will musicians also feel ease about playing a casino or getting on a plane? Because you have a family to think about, obviously, and yeah. bandmates, and it has to be, it has to feel good to you as well as an artist. Yeah. I think at this point where, you know, we've gotten into a groove with, uh, social distancing and sanitizers and uh, gloves and masks. And um, and uh, by all reports, air travel is as safe as any other place. I mean, we would minimize it to the extent that we could. By We tend to, our band over the last several years has done sort of long weekenders, you know, where we go out um, on a, we'd leave on a Thursday to fly into an anchor city, you know, Alex, to get, to play a show on a Friday and Saturday, fly home on a Sunday, or maybe a three-day weekend where we did three dates. And they'd be routed accordingly, and we could fly into a, a anchor city where we lease a, a tour bus to several companies. That, that Our formula has always been the guys actually love tour buses better than uh, flying every day. It's a hassle. We have all our gear. And we thought some of that through. Um, so we would really expand on that concept of not having to fly as much because, you know, you, you go, the mind spirals because you all of your gear and your personal luggage is being handled by other people all the time. Right. So, and our crew would be going in, we're loading, you know, midday one o'clock ish to the venue, wherever it was. So they'd have a formula for wiping down the stuff secondarily, even if it was done by, when it was, uh, you know, we pick it up at the airport when we get into a place. There's a van for that, and then there's a couple of personal vans that drive us to the hotel or the casino, whatever we're staying in on a given night. And then it's transferred to the backstage area. So um, there's a lot of hands at that point. And so our guys, we've talked about it, would just wipe everything down, minimize the backstage staff at the venue, there's always some guys helping uh, unload. and uh, So, you know, there's a whole lot of details. It's like the same details that we'd have to consider the audience. When they come through those doors in the back and there's a narrow aisle down to their row, how much uh, social distancing can you do there, uh, depending on whether they're doing the every other seat or every third seat? They're going back up to use the restroom, the merch table, the bar. There's so many elements of it that frankly are buzzkills because you know, even if they're coming for an exciting night to see our 50 years of music and all the hits they're familiar with, you know, they've got all that kind of luggage to, to wade through with, uh-oh. Right. I mean, 
how much joy are you getting like the old days? <laughs> right. It's, I mean, you could say it's the least sexy time in rock and roll because we're yeah, trying to be sanitized. You're right. You're right, though. It's, uh, it really is a buzzkill, and, and the joy is, is compromised. Um, that's why I, I like the idea of being able to see a live act. I like it. I mean, I can, I mean, it's a compromise, but some of these, I don't know why you'd have to drive to a, a drive in movie theater and sit in your car with other people to watch on a big screen if you to see a live show and then literally you're seeing it live but it's not in real you're not in physically there but why you wouldn't just why they just wouldn't do a pay-per-view thing on your tv or on your laptop or right all these kind of interim concepts that are going around or you know what's the point of that one too because part of it was for me, as a musical viewer and going to concerts, especially when I was younger, it was all about rubbing shoulders with your friends and meeting new people and with common interests. And hey, brother, well, yeah, good to see you. You know that all of the things that that encompass that show. It was more than just seeing the band. It was a communal thing, right? Or it is. Yeah, that that community feeling is really one of the great joys of going to see a band because it's like you're all on the same team. Exactly. And you meet new people with that common interest and maybe you strike up a friendship or people start romances at concerts, all of the right. above. Right. Yeah. The, I, I always tried to do that. I was very unsuccessful, but I certainly never stopped trying. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I want to go back to what you were saying about about not being enormously prolific. And I'm I'm going through this set, which is kind of a staggering collection. It's I mean, from a curatorial perspective, it's a it's such a complete and. Uh, amazing collection filled with so many treats. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Um, I mean, it really is so cool. And so I, I'm curious, being in terms of being prolific, did you put pressure on yourself younger to be producing content, or were you always working it around the same pace? Well, I, in the 70s, certainly during our heyday, as if it were, we've, like I said, we've been 50 years. We started in 1970 as these teenagers out of high school in London, England, and American school. You probably know the story and and here it is you know 50 years later but that first decade and a half maybe two decades there was no need to kick myself in the butt it was kind of flowing and stuff was going on and the songs were coming and jerry was writing and dan before he left the band was writing so we were creating this stuff and developing our our own styles and it was great i mean it was really a magical time and we were the three musketeers and we had super success. God knows how that happened so miraculously because we we really weren't uh, even uh, privy to how promotion works and record companies and so it all happened. Then when it start, you know, when when we locked into that groove and kind of the bloom was off our rose as a band and we weren't uh, selling as much and we changed labels and Dan had left and we changed. Uh, management a couple times and all the things that happened in the evolution of a band that's around that long. Then it became more of a, I really got to buckle down here and write a song for this. We got a new record deal. I'm going to make this work. And of course you cannot recreate whatever that spark was in the beginning. And you also lose whatever newness you provided for a new listener. Hey, who is this band? Who are they? They know who we are. They know what uh, America, at least the ones that are, you know, up on us. And then you're comparing your new product to your old. And it's always a little, everybody's always got great expectations, as I did. I, and I always thought we were building projects that were great. I'm very proud of virtually all of our albums uh, and with some great material. And I appreciate your, your comments there that there is a, quite a catalog of stuff. And some of it is only relative to the era or the time. Didn't really transfer generationally. Others did, I think, other songs. But you you then are really, you're trying to make things. You're trying to uh, up yourself, um, top yourself, whatever. And it's not all that easy to do. And then it's kind of frustrating when you think you've got a great product. This project was polished. 
and worked on for a long time, and it went, it came out, and there's really no interest because people have moved on. Uh, there's new genres of music. There's new technology, and uh, you know, blah blah blah. I'm not crying by any by any stretch. <laughs> it's a reality. But but yeah. nevertheless, like you say, we kept chipping away. We kept out putting stuff out, and the road kept on going on forever. And so you know, at the end of 50 years, we've got quite a lot of stuff that we've now put together into the, the the new big kind of bells and whistles box set is called half century and that's um that's another play on our h titles we used to title all of our albums with an h which happened accidentally by the way but um uh so we tried to really keep that thread going you know and so that box set now has so much stuff I knew a town Who's gonna show me the ups and downs When to smile and when to frown back and, and listening to some of that material was there some stuff that you sort of even forgotten existed and you went oh that was pretty cool yeah there's still stuff well basically we have this magician named jeff larson who is a musician himself and a singer songwriter but he's a jack of all trades a very tech guy and he is the one who has been basically mining all those hard drives and and cassettes i was talking about earlier and eight track tapes and things Jerry saved a whole lot of great stuff, which was good. I saved some stuff, but we did a lot of demoing in the later years, in the 90s and into the early 2000s and stuff at Jerry's. And so Jerry handed over all of his hard drives. And we also had an archive of old stuff from even as far back as England when we made the first album there, stuff I hadn't heard. And as each project came our way or an obligation you need to make an album this year to fulfill your contract we would demo a lot of stuff of course and it would boil down to those 12 tracks that were going to go on the album and i completely forgot about the other stuff and it was still around and we never revisited those songs george martin when he produced us of course he would say we'd bring 
our latest batch of songs for whatever this next album was. And and I, if I had a song that didn't make it on the album before, but I still thought it was worthy, I'd kind of throw it back in the kitty and say, well, what about uh, such and such a song? And George would always say, well, Jewy, if it, if it wasn't good for that album, why would it be good enough for this one? <laughs> kind of a blunt way of saying, because yeah, George was kind of the final arbiter when it came to picking the songs before we started mastering them, when we'd each come with uh, you know eight or ten songs or something, and we had to boil it down. So anyway, those, those demos and those uh, old tapes surfaced. But I, there was a ton of stuff I didn't hear. There's one entire disc called the Poison Oak Sessions, which yeah. was my only a- attempt at a home studio of any substance. I called it Poison Oak Studio, and it was over in San Anselmo at our house in those days. And it was the only serious time I got all the guys up to work there. And they were staying in Mill Valley at the Howard Johnson or something, and a couple guys were at my house. And, you know, and we recorded, uh, and virtually only two songs came out of this set of 12 or 15 songs and they didn't even make it onto the next album they kind of were used on a subsequent album so i completely forgotten about that so the poison oak uh disc on that is an example of some stuff that was completely forgotten and and it's great it was really great i mean there was a lot of spark in there and i it flashed me right back to working in my basement studio there and in Marin, and it was uh, it's a good time. Yeah, the and there's more of that anyway. Uh, uh, more of that, a lot more on this project. And I think that was around '81, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, because my daughter was just born, or or she. Uh, I'm not sure of the month in '81, but um, I always remember she was just about ready to be born, or had just been born. Yeah, and for people who are going to grab the collection, there's such cool unheard stuff in that poison oak session there's a song called china sea which i really love oh thank you so you've heard it yeah that's a yeah i love i, I have and i love i really love oh. that track and there's another one is sailors and seagulls like the first is that the one i'm thinking of uh it's yeah, the first both of, the, both of those would have been the two that i would have mentioned to you too had i if you looked at titles sailors and oh. seagulls i think i i like better than china sea China Sea has got more of a Latin feel to it, and the lyric was China Sea. And I remember I was going to go back and call it the Cortez Sea uh. to, to at least align with the Latin feel. But that never happened, obviously. <laughs> but thank <laughs> you for pointing. Yeah, there's some, I mean, there, was, there was a song on there called My Dear, which did ultimately make it to an album. That's what I was telling you about earlier. Um, Think my dear, and I always loved that song. It, it got on, um, it got on the album, I believe, with "You Can Do Magic," which was around 1981. Anyway, maybe that, right. was, and maybe that one made it right on that one straight from those Poison Oak sessions. But it's it's so cool to actually hear kind of a different side of the band, like it's a little looser, a little scruffier, and um, it, it's such a great it's a great way to sort of have a more comprehensive understanding of what, of what you guys were doing and what you were sounding like. Yeah, well, thanks. I thought so, too, when I heard them, when they were unearthed and I heard them again, I thought, I can remember that energy. You know, that was, that's a lost sort of uh, emotion or something as you get older and a little bit more beaten down. The excitement of, uh, I remember, we didn't polish them really terribly, but we, we got them down. Right. And it was real drums and bass. You know, my studio actually had a control room with glass be- between it and the room. And um, at that time, I had an engineer, rest in peace, Tom Anderson, who lived in uh, Mill Valley there, and he was a great tech. And had worked at the rec- we'd worked at the record plant there in Sausalito on one of our other albums. And so we'd stayed in touch. And he'd actually worked with us then with George Martin and Jeff Emmerich in uh, an album we made in Hawaii. So Tom was around, so he was really a great help uh, uh, getting everything up and running for those guys and me. And but I just remember, it really brought me back to that. I could remember uh, those nights and afternoons working there. Good. I'm glad you felt that too, though. Yeah, it's a, the vibe is just really cool. 
I would imagine, by the way, when George Martin would say something to you like, uh, well, anything, I would be so deferential to a guy like that. Did you ever disagree with him? And, or did you always think, well, it's George Martin. He probably knows what he's talking about better than I do. We pretty well, pretty well handed him the range, yeah, especially those first few albums, because we were, you know, in awe. I mean, we then became, you know, the, you, you just become workmates to some degree. He always had an air, though, of uh, regal, regal kind of a guy. He yeah. Was an imposing guy, tall, handsome, very British. I, I learned later that his British accent, which was, what we, having lived in England for six years, I was born there, too, uh, and gone through high school, and my mother, I knew about some of the accents. Told me that uh, I was told that he really worked on that that accent because he it, it was more posh as they say it was a bit more posh a bit more upper crust but he wasn't like that is what I'm saying he was a very down to earth guy but uh, his accent belied that a little bit sometimes it made you feel but he had a great sense of humor fun guy and we would disagree a little bit but not much you know we collaborated immensely. Because Jerry, Dan, and I both, all three of us were a unit in terms of arranging the songs ourselves a little bit before we took them to George. So we had a rough idea of the vocal arrangements and the instrumentation. But George could step right out of that and say, oh, no, no, we must put a piano there, or we should do... He, of course, he brought, he brought any um, orchestral arrangements and horn parts to the table. And that came with George Martin, too. I never really had an ear for that element of a song. I, I'm, I like the stripped-down guitars, bass, drums, maybe an, an organ or something, uh, and percussion uh, elements. But he really brought that whole, basically the, his classical training element to it. Yeah. The things, the things, dare I say, that he brought to the Beatles. But uh, that, was, that came with George. Yeah, what a remarkable experience. I mean, working with him at that time, I would have been such a such a fanboy. I would have been asking him, like, what are the Beatles like? I'm not sure if yeah, you were... Well, we, did, we did a little bit of that. I mean, but, you know, you, did, you didn't want to bug him with that, too, because I know they've right. been overwhelmed by it. Jeff Emmerich, too, of course. Jeff Emmerich, who, again, is another one we've lost, as well as George. But, uh, you know, you'd ask him a little story here or there. It's funny, though, you suddenly started to gloss that over, and, yeah, we know all that Beatles stuff you did. It was fun, though. I've, I've told this story before. On the first album we did with George, 1974, in, um, in London there at Air Studios, uh, when he would go, he'd say, let's go into the back uh, percussion room and get some bits to come and put on this track. And this one we used on... on um, on Yellow Submarine, and this one we used uh, the bell on Penny Lane or something. And that was kind of this tactile, whoa. Yeah, the six degrees of separation just went down to we're using the same, you know, cowbell that the Beatles used on such and such a track. That was pretty Great. far. Uh. But, you know, we didn't get, you know, they weren't really gossipy or so much stuff is out there anyway did get to meet all the Beatles at one point or another. George, the only one George introduced me to was Paul, because he was working with Paul since the Beatles had woken up, uh, woken up broken up. And so he, he invited me and my uh, first wife in there once when they were doing the listen back to one of Paul's solo deals, and that was pretty exciting. Oh, yeah. Got it. I you know I was talking to Robbie Krieger from The Doors a couple of weeks ago and he was telling me that he's making a reggae album and I was wondering is there a sort of sonic choice that you'd like to do something adventurous that you've always wanted to do um, or have you always tried to stay in the same pocket like reggae or something yeah yeah um, you know I was kind of a latecomer to the blues and I really uh, have immersed myself since those days in, in old blues music and the structure and the, those performances are also cool. I mean, to make a blues album, I did make a, a, a kind of a half attempt at a song. It's called uh, Dream Come True. It's a kind of form. You know, blues is not really a formula. Whenever people say, oh, it's just those regular old blues chords, the 12 chords, the soul bar blues. I mean, 
they're all different, and there's so many subtleties in them. And of course, it depends on the artist and his voice and the way he played guitar and of all the old legends. But that always interested me, and I, that from that I kind of started to learn more about jazz a little bit. I was never schooled. I only knew what I liked. It was always I started off uh, getting inspired by surf music, instrumental music, when I was like in the seventh grade and playing. I got an acoustic guitar and learned how to single note pick some of those things, and then went on to the Beach Boys and wow, harmonies, how great is that? Then the Beatles came. Of course, you've heard the story a million times from it seems our generation of young garage band kids. So I did follow the advent of reggae, really. We got hip to that in London, kind of before it became, I mean, it was there, obviously, but there were a lot of Jamaicans and West Indians in London, and some of the studios we were demoing in, they were demoing stuff, and so that was neat. We, we made our one-shot attempt at a semi-reggae beat with the song called Woman Tonight. Hmm. But uh, I think we're just that singer-songwriter thing. It's still, it's still, for me anyway, those acoustic guitars and those vocal harmonies and maybe a cool electric guitar solo, all of which we didn't break any new ground there. But it was, it's, it's the thing that uh, appeals to me most when we do get in and work on stuff. Your friendship with Jerry is uh, remarkable, and it's hard enough to be friends, you know, in general. But friends in a band—that—that um, that is a—that is quite an achievement to, you know, to have stayed pals this long. Yeah, people say that, and I, I guess I have to agree. We we just—it it was like we just met each other, hit hit it off as anybody does in high school. Had that music thing in common. Jerry and, and I was, were actually on the track team in our senior year of high school, which was no big deal. But we had a couple of, um, you know, we sort of liked the same things. Then when the career took off, and we lived in each other's pockets that first year and a half or two, really. We, after high school, we ended up getting a little cottagey thing in, London, in England, North, North London. It was on a farm, and we lived together. And we, that's when you bonded, really, with your daily habits and eating and and things that we all did together it was uh you can't really undo that kind of a a relationship the music was woven into it but we were living that and then we all experienced the, these brand new things together dan jerry and i we'd never done all these things these live shows traveled to new york city for the first time and played you know finally moved out to hollywood and you know, David Geffen and Elliot Roberts, all our heroes were in Lookout Management, CSN, and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell. We were in, you know, we were living and experiencing all of that together, and you can't undo that part of it. But then the other, the other key element is that Jerry does have a separate life, and I have a separate life, and he, he has different interests in that part of his life, you know. He's... Um, he lives in Australia now, half of his year, uh, with his Australian wife in L.A., and we live in L.A. and in, uh, up here in northern Wisconsin for half of it or thereabouts. And I had moved to the Bay Area, up to the Bay Area, in like 74. We'd spent one year in, in L.A. and moved up to, after the project we did in Sausalito, kind of fell in love with that area and um, and moved up there and uh, never really came back to L.A. until kind of my second life started with my new wife. And that was uh, an element that we were separated, in other words. But we always had the thread of all that history and all that music that we'd made, and, and we do get along really well on the road. We're very fortunate. It's a lot of fun, and our sense of humor is always there. And, um, you know, we've been through kids and grandkids and all of the things already. Well, you, you must miss hanging out with that guy because you, you haven't seen him in a while. No, no shows. That must be a weird. Yeah, weird... well, I miss all the guys. Yeah, Jerry, of course, too. We communicate virtually daily uh, via text and, and emails and whatever we're doing. We send each other, you know, goofy stuff. Uh, the rest of the band, um, we, we just try to stay in 
we really thought this was going to be resolved by now. So it's, it's longer and longer between communiques. Everybody okay? It's more about, like, you know, you're in the dark saying, are you still breathing over there? <laughs> right. You know, it's kind right. of like there's not much else to talk about right now. What are you going to talk? We've already mulled over the situation and, and tried to come up with plans. We're not doing anything. So it's more of the same every day. That's why I've said we're just counting the days and checking them off on the calendar until something breaks. Well, one of the before I let you go, I was always curious about you because uh, your mother your mother is English, right? Right. So did you ever did you ever feel sort of like um, you know caught between two cultures? You know, in terms of being British and being American, did you how did you self identify? You know, culturally. Well, when I was younger, as a, you know, in, in elementary school and on through junior high, I because I was born there. And only lived there till I was, I think, two. And then my my father was in the Air Force, as was Jerry's and Dan's, and we traveled around as an Air Force family. So the next thing I remember was we lived in Florida, and then in Omaha, and in Biloxi, Mississippi, and then we did move live in California on two different uh, assignments: one at Vandenberg Air Force Base down there in Santa Maria, and once up in San Jose. We're at Sunny. My dad was based at Sunnyvale. Mm-hmm. The Bay Area thing right then, but it wasn't until we moved back to California, to England, when my dad was stationed there in '66, that the re- reality of my English background. My mother's had an English accent, and she, she definitely had English mannerisms, which really came to the fore when we moved back to England. So then I thought, oh, this is where this all comes from. You know, this is my mom, and I met my grandparents. British side over there and um, and locked into it. I was never torn, in other words. I always felt American and always had my accent. And But I embraced immediately the culture over there, and especially because of my English grandparents and stuff. We'd go visit them, and I'd see really how British people live. Because it was possible to be an American and not... You could just stay on the base if you if or base housing, or just kind of put your toe in the water with any culture. It's the same with people stationed in Germany or Japan or Dan's family had been stationed in uh, Pakistan. You know, you can essentially isolate or insulate if you want. But my dad made it a point of living off base, and so we we really did absorb the British culture and the British humor. And, and dare I say, those years. 66 to 72 when we came back when the band had broken we flew we came back to the states were pretty influential times culturally for us and everybody else you know we were watching monty python before it probably made it to the states and and a lot of those british bands that were just breaking over there we were kind of there in real time but on the other side of the coin we were missing all the american bands until they worked their way over so when we, you know, Steppenwolf, wow. Some <laughs> bands don't uh, make it in different countries. You know, they just don't break. I remember Journey, uh, when I lived in Marin, Steve Perry became a friend and, and the Journey guys. And they're going, you guys are playing in Europe and England? And as I recall, they said, we don't have a following there or, or whatever. So it's just kind of a regional thing. But I've, I've definitely identified as a person of the world. I'm definitely, you know, I get it in other countries, and we've traveled everywhere. We've played everywhere through South America and Central America, and we've been to Israel, we've been to Moscow, we've been to, you know, we've played in Morocco. I've seen a lot of the world, and I, I, I appreciate that. And I hold that dear, and I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a potentially a worldview that, uh, of course, it changes all the time, but, I mean, that's been a great aspect of both living in an Air Force family and being in the band, and they complemented each other, you know, travel-wise. I, I really I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me. It's I, I'm, I've been a fan of yours for so long, and it's, it's so yeah. nice to hear you talk about the music and talk about your experiences, and I, it, it's a really gratifying to uh, get a chance to speak with you. Well, thank you so much, Alex. You're, you're a, a great interviewer, and I can see you 
done your homework and I appreciate your kind words. guy, right? Denny Vanell of America. I enjoyed that. Uh, and by the way, you are going to enjoy the America box set. You think you know this band. I'm telling you, you don't. There is so much to them uh, that this box set, I mean, it really captures a side of the band um, that, that I think will surprise you. They're loose. They're breezy. Yes, that's true. Uh, but these, these songs that you haven't heard before uh, it's a whole it's a whole other dimension to the band that you might not have known was there. And when you listen to the unreleased stuff, it's like gem after gem after gem. It's unbelievable. Anyway, get it. Half century. Uh, great Christmas present. Uh, someone in your family will really enjoy it. You'll enjoy it. Get it for yourself. It's a great Hanukkah present, too, by the way. Eight discs. You know, one disc a night. It works out. The math checks. Uh, VenturaHighway.com is where you should go to find out what's going on with America. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you want to go to find out what's happening with me. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, at Embers Editor. You can follow me on Instagram, at Embers Podcast, or you can just email me, Editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Who do you want on the show? Who should I bring back on the show? That kind of stuff. Tell me what's going on inside your head. Write me your wish list, and I'll do my very best to uh, to accommodate your desires. <laughs> I don't know why that sounds so uh, clinical, but that's how it came out, so let's just go with it. Hey, by the way, go where you get your podcasts. I don't know. What platform do you use? It doesn't matter. We are there. Subscribe. Leave us a rating. Uh, these ratings these days, we're in Yelp Nation, so it's all about ratings. It really does help us out if you do that, so thank you in advance. Uh, for taking the time to write something nice, you know, something generous, something heartfelt. Or if you don't have time for all that sentiment, just give us five stars and get on with your life. I know you're busy. All right, let's close the show with a brand new song from America. This is Remembering. Enjoy it. And thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast exclusively right here on Bombshell Radio. Those are the places that we used to go I see all the faces on our favorite shows The constant reminder of the way things were Hard to picture, did it all occur? I don't want to think about you anymore I don't want to tell you that my heart is breaking I'm not the kind who likes me Walking together down Lakeshore Drive Something about it kept us both alive Wondering if you got home alright Worrying about you kept me up all night I can't think about it anymore I can't tell you that my heart is breaking I'm not the guy who likes Just a memory, remember. 